I swear, when you find the place where your spirit just comes alive and you could be doing it like 24-7, it was like, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Welcome to Reinvention Revels, stories of brave and unapologetic women, 50 to 90 years young, who have boldly reimagined life on their own terms to find new purpose and possibilities. I'm your host, Wendy Battles. Ready for a dose of inspiration? Let's get to it. Energetic, empowered, evolved eager to make a difference. These are a few of the words that describe my guest today, Keturah Bryant. I first met Keturah sometime in the 90s, which of course feels like forever ago. Keturah is one of those super smart women who has a long list of initials after her name. She has spent her career being of service to others in a multitude of ways, largely in the area of mental health. She's continuing this journey in her 60s, tuning into her spirit and creativity to guide her and reveal new possibilities. Let me give you a sense for her background. Katura is a graduate of the University of Connecticut School of Nursing and Southern Connecticut State University with a graduate degree in marriage and family therapy. She is a licensed marriage family therapist licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and a certified clinical supervisor. Katura, now retired, was the assistant clinical director at the Connecticut Mental Health Center Substance Abuse Treatment Unit in New Haven. Katura is the CEO at Global Alchemy Group and heads the training division. The organization provides business opportunities and health and wellness training workshops recognizing that health is wealth. Katura is a founding partner of IMPACT, Multicultural Perspectives in Assessment, Consultation, and Training, specializing in cultural competence training in healthcare delivery, culturally competent supervision, and staff development retreats since 1993. Katura has also developed the Zola Experience, a seven-session brief treatment intervention to address grief, trauma, and loss that she offers to providers. Katora has worked as a private practice clinician and consultant to various agencies in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and Canada, to name a few. She enjoys dancing, is an NNA certified notary public and signing agent, and a life member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. At 68 years young, she continues to reinvent herself in interesting and engaging ways. Couture Bryant, welcome to Reinvention Revels. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Miss Wendy. It is my humble pleasure to be sitting in this seat. So thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure as well. And I know, girl, we got a lot to talk about when it comes to reinvention. I know that I I believe that women are ingenious, sometimes out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And we readily reinvent ourselves basically as needed or as desired. I certainly have transformed myself many different times in my life. Can you tell me about a few ways that you've reinvented yourself during the course of your career and your life? What sort of inspired your desire to reinvent? Well, I think you're absolutely correct that a lot of the um, inspiration does come from necessity. Um, I found myself doing things in my adult life that I didn't think that I was qualified for in the sense that it was presented to me. Um, I think I've done a number of things. I've been a school nurse. I've been a visiting nurse. Um, But those things, they were good. They were fun. Uh, I found that 
you know, school nursing is an interesting space to be in because, you know, I was dealing with the little people and I always wanted to, you know, make their life uh, just, you know, I wanted to go a little bit above and beyond just being the school nurse. So, you know, it was like, I want to do bulletin boards. I want to do a, a group. I did a group uh, support group when I was a school nurse at St. Martin de Porres for, um, self-esteem building for young, for young women. A lot of them were, um, were struggling with their weight and they were being somewhat bullied. Uh, some of them weren't, but they were still being bullied. And so that was one of the, th the things that I decided that I was going to do. Um, and then I did hospital nursing for a little while, hated it, but. <laughs> But, you know, I did a good job and didn't know how that was going to serve me until um, I became a parent. My first child, you know, it's like, oh, my God, you know, I need to bring in some income. So I ended up being a, um, a per diem nurse on a med surge unit. Not that I liked it, but, you know, I always you know, put my best foot forward. And so my, my clients never, my patients never knew I didn't like it. But, um, you know, some of the things that I was doing was not congruent with what I was supposed to be doing. I wanted to talk to them as opposed to doing all this other stuff. So I did that for a minute. And then I um, worked as, I found my niche in life. I got a job at the VA in West Haven. And I was working on the addictions unit and it was like nirvana. I swear when you find the place where your spirit just comes alive and you could be doing it like 24 seven, it was like, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I absolutely loved it. And it was probably the most diverse nursing experience that I had. And I have a lifelong friend as a result of that nursing type experience. Um, so it was really, really good. But then I, I had more children. And then the reality was I just really couldn't keep up with that pace. And so I quit a very good job. I was getting paid quite well and uh, decided that we were going to go into the frozen fish business. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that is like a major shift. A major, major shift. That meant that I had to like, we had no customers, Wendy. I had no customers. And, you know, initially it was like, well, I'll kind of sort of venture into that. I didn't really even know really where to start. My 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 idea of starting once I left that my my full time job was I was going to come home, take care of the kids, and clean up the house and do all these other superficial things until you know my husband came home and said, you know, I just quit my job, and I was like, really? That means nobody, <laughs> that means nobody in this house is employed. Oh well, that's no. not good with all these kids. I said that's not good. I'm looking looking at these little babies. They look like little birds with their mouth open, like oh, feed me, you know. <laughs> But um, so it was like, okay, I had to pray on it. And, you know, my spiritual, my spiritual walk has, has always helped me through things. So I had to pray on it. And um, I just started doing cold calls and hearing no's and no's and no's. And then finally, when I heard a maybe, I was like really happy. And then it was like, wow. And then a friend of mine, uh, James Bilal, I always give him his props. He had just started a business himself and he was delivering oil. And he said, well, Sister Couture, you know, I'll share my customer list with you. Ah. And that, he gave me access to about 200 people. I ended up doing that and then doing some, some per diem in, in adolescent psych at the same time. I mean, it was just an insane time, but the business grew and when I decided as my children got older, we did this for about five years. And as my children got older, I thought I really need to get back into my career of uh, healthcare delivery. And I had over 1200 clients that we were servicing. Wow. wow. And, um, there are a lot so of people. Right. So there's a lot of people in the area that know my voice, but they've never seen me. And so sometimes I'd be like, 
in a, in a, in the store and I would say something, I'd start talking and they'd say, aren't you, aren't you the lady that used to sell fish? And that still happens. Like how many years later, like 20, almost 30 years later. And they said, aren't you the woman that used to sell fish? So it really does, you know, does my heart good. So, you know, I became a, a, that's, that was my entrepreneurial spirit. And that's what really got started. And, but I've always tried to, go outside the the designated boxes. I recognize that, you know, no place where you are punching a clock is a stable job. And, you know, because I've gotten laid off or whatever. And you would think as a nurse, people look at me as a nurse, nurses are, don't get laid off. Oh yeah, they do. And so in the back of my mind, I've always wanted just something a little bit extra. And um, even when I was selling fish, I was trying to educate people about the benefits of their diet. And I would do fish parties like people did Tupperware parties. Are you thinking, I'll have some of what she's having? Reinvention ripples are amazing, as you can hear from our discussion. They've put themselves first decided their dreams matter, and are taking action. They have unleashed their inner rebel and are living on purpose in midlife. Are you ready to start putting yourself first and embark on your midlife dreams, focused on what you want, not others' ideas of what you should do? Come check out my new audio course, Midlife Reinvention from the Inside Out, Eight Essentials to Greenlight Your Life. I share my roadmap to get you started on your reinvention journey with the key components you need to navigate detours and get on the road to smooth reinvention sailing. Sis, it is time to give yourself the green light to shine in midlife and crush those dreams of yours with joy and purpose. Join today and let's reinvent and get inspired together. Details are in the show notes. love that. Who would have ever thought of such a thing? I love it. So they would invite their friends and Ah. I had the credentials to talk to them. You know, it was like, you know, come here, you know, uh, at that time it was Salam. She's going to talk about nutrition and health and we're going to have a food demonstration. You know, I would bring my own skillet. I would fry this whiting filet and I would bring this big, huge salad. And they would just have to supply paper goods because, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that um, the utensils and the things that I use were pure. And so people, they got it, you know, and they understood it. And they would, that increased my, uh, my uh, customer base because it was like, yes, I want to eat better. I want to, you know, and I wouldn't just talk about fish. I talk about basically how to eat a healthy diet, lots of fresh vegetables, even back in the day. So I always wanted to add value to whatever it was that I was doing. I wanted to add value to people's lives, however way that I could. God has really, truly just kind of blessed me with mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can see that theme throughout your career, both when you were working for organizations, when you're working for yourself, this idea of the extra that you brought that you talked about, how you always added the little keturah, you know, sparkle mm-hmm. to things, the way mm-hmm. you, you did things and you used your creativity, which really made it your own, whether it was working in a traditional job, even though, as you said, sometimes you didn't really love it. There were jobs that you liked and other jobs you're like, eh. And then there was this idea of doing something that was all your own and how you, because part of what I hear you saying is you created this from nothing. You took this fish business, you reinvented yourself selling fish. You took it from nothing. But part of what you did is you told people about it and they helped you, right? You told your friend, hey, I'm doing this. He said, oh, hey, you can share my list. And then you were able to really build it from there. What are some of the most important things you've learned through this process of reinventing yourself? Two things. One is my spiritual foundation. And I say spiritual because um, not necessarily religious, because I come from such a diverse family of spiritual philosophies. So it wasn't so much of one thing or another. 
Um, and the other is my family and there and the importance of when I say family, I say the family that I was born into as well as the family that I chose to embrace. And I think that that's an important piece that people need to understand that you can come from your, your blood relatives. They may not be the healthiest people in the world and they may not treat you and respect you in the way that you need to be respected and treated, but you have the opportunity to choose people to surround you that will give you that. And I'm a real firm believer that you got to ask, ask the universe, ask the universe, ask your ancestors, and they will bring all of those things to you. So those are the things that help me. Those are the things that, that move me. You know, I was very, very close to my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, um, who was a phenomenal businesswoman. She was a phenomenal human being. Her name was Lenola Pierce Woodard. And she, quote unquote, had a third grade education. But she ran a beauty salon with six chairs for over 30 years. Wow. And it was one of the premier beauty salons in Nashville, Tennessee. It was on Jefferson Street, which was the the main hub of black business and entrepreneurship in Nashville. And it was Beauty Land Beauty Shop and everybody knew Miss Lynn. And, you know, and I remember going there when I was like a little girl because that's, you know, I was born in Nashville and I, I lived there until I was like seven. But I remember going to her beauty salon on the weekends with my younger sister and my younger cousin. And I think she was just taking us to give my great grandmother a break from all the childcare that she was doing during the week. Cause it was just the hub of every day, all the cousins would convene and then we disperse and go to school and then everybody would come back. And Sunday, that was the place where everybody was. And, but yes, Lenola Woodard was like, she did everything. And, but she was so, she was just a gentle spirit, but you knew not to mess with her. No, she was so real she's clear. really a role model for you. Yeah, she was real clear about boundaries and she was yeah. real clear about, you know, what you were supposed to be doing. And so, but she not only was a, what uh, she called her, she was a award-winning master beautician and stylist. She was a tailor. She was a seamstress. She made her own patterns. She, she, wow, she loved everything. I mean, and then she could cook. Oh my God. I, I'm still trying to figure out some of her recipes, but <laughs> you know, but she was like that person, but she was yeah. just loving on top of all of that. So she was just my heart. And uh, so I tried to, to pattern, I guess, in my life, like after her, like doing multiple things, being multiple and doing those things. Yeah. I can see that. And I can see what a legacy she was, a role model, a legacy for you to emulate in your own way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But something to aspire to. And mm -hmm. I think that's great because I don't think we always, not everyone has that kind of role model in their family or mm -hmm. someone that they have like such a deep, I know we can of course look around the world and see people that we might admire, but there's something to be said though about someone that you know, that's from your family, that helped raise you, who, where it's a different, a different level of understanding and being able to see them, all the different nuances yes. of this person that you just talked about that was very complex. And I think it also goes to show that, you know, I think sometimes we put a lot of emphasis on someone's education, but we can all achieve things in many different ways. And there isn't Absolutely. one that way that it has mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. I know sometimes people think that, well, I have to do X, Y, and Z, but mm -hmm. according to whom? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And people express their genius in so many different ways, especially people from uh, communities of color, because we oftentimes didn't have access, but that didn't mean that we were not brilliant and talented. I mean, to think of being able to create a pattern and then make a dress Oh, yeah. She also made hats and she had the, her signature thing was she may, would make you a hat and then she would be able to cover your shoes with the, some of the material from your hat and she'd cover your shoes. She she developed some little thing that she did. So your hat matched her shoes. I mean, really, it was. That's amazing. Exactly. And she would just, 
you know, that was her. And, and so I think that as a community, you know, that's one of the things I think that we lost, that we chose not to embrace. You know, we got caught up in the, you need to have alphabet soup behind your name in order for you to even, quote unquote, be perceived as being intelligent, which is really a sad state of affairs because, you know, when you look back, it, you know, like some of the things that I've done had nothing to do with a nursing degree or a marriage and family therapy degree, had nothing to do with that. It was just a, a good idea. Yes. So let's just do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes back to that idea you talked about that you really tune into your spirit and mm-hmm. what moves you. And then you listen to that and act on that. And mm-hmm. and certainly many of my other guests have said something similar. I believe the same thing as well. So I'm kind of curious about how that manifests for you, because I talk a lot in Reinvention Rebels about what I call my three R's, reflect, reimagine and restart. Mm-hmm. And it all starts with this idea of self-reflection. That's mm-hmm. been so key to me, just getting quiet, tuning in, listening to, I feel like the universe speaking through me. Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you? I know you said you're a very spiritual person, but can you tell us more about how you, how do you hear this wisdom? How does that bubble <laughs> up for you? Um, I journal. I've been journaling for as long as I can remember. I remember asking my mother for a diary back when I was like in June middle school. Can I have a diary? You know, one with the keys so I can put all my thoughts. Right. And so I've been journaling probably since I was like in middle school. And I think I've always found that was like one avenue, but I always found that to be a writing my thoughts and feelings out to be a place of safety for me. Um, One, because, you know, we moved from my grandmother's uh, protective wing and um, because my parents at the time, they were, uh, my dad was going to school and um, my mother was, you know, she had married my my dad, my adopted dad. I would call him my, my second dad. Um, uh, when I was like two years old. And so my, I stayed with my grandmother as opposed to go to New York and be with them. Right. So when I'm seven, these people come back and they say, hi, you know, although they say they came back annually, but when you're that young, who remembers? Right. Right. So, right. So you, I'm seven and they're like, get in the car. You're going to go for a ride. Nobody prepares you for the, the reality that you're not coming back. Heartbreaking. <laughs> so, Hello. That's right. like everything. Exactly. And so I was like, okay. And I have always been the emotional barometer for my family. And, you know, everybody expresses their whatever, but I was the one that was just outwardly expressive of the fact that there's something wrong here, you know. And so when I was separated from my grandmother, it was like, you know, we got in the car, we started driving. So after we got to about Denver, I was like, from Nashville, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go back home. It's like, well, you know, you're not going back to to Nashville. I was like, excuse me. (laughs) Right. I commenced to cry probably to at least past St. Louis until, you know, pop was enough of that crying. You're done. I don't want to hear anything more, blah, blah, blah. And by the time we, we got to Seattle, which was where we were relocating to, I had eczema everywhere. It was just my emotional, that was how I could express my emotions, you know, was through that. So, you know, I've had, you know, my share of traumas and loss and all of that throughout, but it's been the journaling that has helped me to process my reality. And then I discovered nature. Like when we were in Seattle, we used to go for, uh, you know, we'd go hiking in Mount Rainier. And, and I remember drinking the crisp water and, but I also remember the solitude and the quietness. We would just sit sometimes in the quiet. Our family would be sitting in the woods, nobody saying anything, and we would just sit. And so I have I had this like real appreciation for nature and how healing nature is. 
And then I discovered the ocean. Oh, yeah. (laughs) When we moved to the East Coast, it was like, now this is my happy place. And I discovered that, that sitting in nature, whether it's the ocean or the woods, was a place where I could get in touch with myself and I could feel myself and I could cry and I could do, do what I needed to do in order for me to, or to just contemplate, to just sit there and look at the ocean and, and the grandness of, of the creator and say, what is it that you want me to do? Look how grand this is. Like what? I'm like a grain of sand in your reality. Like what is it that little grain of sand me can do to make an impact on all of this? And that's when things would come to me. And I would, you know, wake up and, you know, dreams would, I try to pay attention to dreams and, and just those voices and, you know, just trying to understand. And so for me, that journey has been, and then I would be around these very spiritual people and um, probably one of the most spiritual individuals that crossed my path was when I was blessed to go to graduate school and I met this woman named Dolores D. Brown and um, she was my mentor, my mother, my grandmother, my teacher, my girlfriend, my whatever it was, she epitomized all of those things for me and we had a beautiful friendship for years and years and years, for years. And she, she was like, you know, she wouldn't cut, cut, cut her, but she, if she, if I, she thought I was doing something that was not correct or that was not that she perceived, you know, that's not of your spirit. She would call me on it and she would be right. And it would be like, yes, you're right. And we would just sit for hours sometimes in the sun or at the beach, just sit and say, and, and, and communicate in silence. Yeah. That's interesting. I think it's interesting. This theme that, that, that has been woven through a lot of your experiences about being still and being silent, even when you're with other people, Mm -hmm. because I, I feel like people feel often compelled to do a lot of talking. They're with each other. People often feel uncomfortable with silence, mm-hmm. yet I feel like being in silence is invaluable, whether you're with you're alone or you're with someone else. Mm-hmm. And I, I I like that 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 theme. I also think it's interesting that you know you're kind of torn away from everything that you knew, mm-hmm. and it was so traumatic, so traumatic that you made you you know break out an eczema. But <laughs> on the other side of that, part of what I, I hear is that by having these experiences, by leaving, even though it was so difficult, it opened you up to these new experiences. Mm-hmm. It did. To really right, appreciate the world, nature, these new experiences in different ways than perhaps if you had just stayed in Nashville. Who knows? Mm-hmm. You might have had similar experiences. We don't know. But I think it's very interesting, though, that even though it was hard at first, it mm-hmm. feels like you gained a lot both, you know, from being in these different environments. I did. Um, And when we moved, it wasn't like across the, across town or even in the same state. I mean, we went from Nashville to Seattle, from Seattle to Huntsville, Alabama, from Huntsville, Alabama to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, from Cedar Rapids, Iowa to Lexington, Massachusetts. And all of them had an imprint on me at whatever stage of growth and development that I was. Um, I think I, my first experience with diversity was when I, when we went from Nashville to Seattle, because in Nashville, my world was, was my, my family. It was black and brown people. That's the only people I knew. Right. Right. I I go to Seattle and it's like, woo, it's like this, you know, I see Asian people for the first time. Uh, I'm up front and close with Europeans for the first time. I experience prejudice for the first time. Um, because, you know, I 
I came out of Nashville and I thought that, you know, life was great. I was the cutest thing that my grandmother had ever seen. <laughs> and then there was that wake up call. And there was that wake up call. It's like, oh, you know, I'm and, you know, given that message, Wendy, at a very early age, I will tell you my and I think it really has it 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 allowed me to do the, the cultural competence work and the, they call it cultural competence and inclusion work now. But I think it really helped me to be able to do that living in such diverse communities, right? I had to figure out, I had to adjust, um, but I also had to figure out how I was not going to lose me, that I wasn't going to assimilate to the point that I lost my sense of self and my sense of identity. So here I was when we moved to the suburbs of Seattle and I was like eight, years old by this time. And and I went to school and we were the only children of color. We were the diversity in the school district, not just the school, but the whole town. Okay. The district. So, you know, my first few days of school and, you know, the first day of school and we got in line to go to the lunchroom and somebody, this, this, I, this is how trauma works. I am 68 years old and, and 60 years ago, this happened to me and I, and I can still experience it. Okay. So this woman, this young girl says to me, Oh, you know, I don't want to stand next to the N word. I was like, and I was like, Oh, I know she's not talking to me. <laughs> and I commenced to my rage of leaving my grandmother. I commenced to beat this poor child up. It was, it was like, I just let her have it. And of course, you know, they called my mother and my mother came and she was being the suburban wife. And she, <laughs> she was like, Oh, yes. Okay. She took me out to that car. And I, I, sometimes it's like, is my ear still there? Sometimes I have to touch my ear because she had run my ear so bad. And she was like, don't you ever do that again. Don't, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. Yeah. That hurt me. You know, she, you know, that hurt me. And she was like, don't you ever do that again? Don't you know that they are expecting you to behave like that? You are carrying the race. And I'm sitting there saying, and, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, I'm eight years old. How am I carrying the race? Really? Right. Yeah. That's a lot <laughs> to put like, on an eight-year-old. Right. And she says, you know, oh, no, you can't do that ever again. And if you do, I will beat you till you can't see straight. And I was like, okay, I get it. And from that time on, I had to figure out how was I going to survive in hostile environments that weren't kind to me, but not allow that to define me or allow those experiences that I experienced to prohibit me from doing what I chose to do, what I wanted to do, and what I felt like was my mission to do. And when you when you look a, across the spectrum, you know, Huntsville, Alabama, there were still, there were still signs up when I was in Huntsville in the early sixties. And, you know, it, it, it we were in a uh, integrated Catholic school because that was the only school that was integrated because they were influxing all of these people into Redstone Arsenal. And my dad was one of those engineers that was, that was there. But we, it was like, you know, from Seattle to coming there was a different world. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, so now we're restricted. And we only stayed about a little over a year because Pop was like, oh, no, we're not, we're not going to live like this. And so we ended up going to, to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. <laughs> it was still, it was still oppressive, but in a different kind of way. Hey, amazing listeners. Want to have Reinvention Rebels inspiration delivered to your inbox? Head over to reinventionrebels.com and sign up for my news and notes. So you've been in so many different situations where part of it is you, it, it sounds like you had to flex, you had to flex who you were mm -hmm. to adapt to different situations. Mm -hmm. It was, it was either do that or not. So what I discovered was the great segue to acceptance was athleticism first, brains kind of second, 
you know, I, you know, cause it was like, you know, I didn't have any choice, but to be a good student. Cause I had to deal with those people that I lived with. Right. But me trying to figure out how I was going to socialize. I knew that being a good athlete was one of those things. So, you know, that's, that was my calling card. It was like, you know, I was yeah. a good athlete. I was fast. I could run, you know, I, I you know, and when we got to Iowa, I tried out for cheerleading. And because that I recognized was like the number one social um, entry. Only thing they were doing in the mid 60s in Iowa was football, basketball and cheerleading. So if you weren't doing one of those three things, then you were just kind of on the outs. You're like, the yeah, story, right. Um because I'm wise know, enough to know. Right. And I didn't know all of this social unrest was going on. See, I, you're in this little cornfield bubble. Yeah, right. So it's I, so different. I, right. Who knew that, you know, the Black Panthers were doing this and there was civil unrest here and everywhere. And then we moved in the mid year of my sophomore year in high school to Lexington, Massachusetts. 11 miles out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they were protesting and all kinds of stuff was going on. I thought I had hit pay dirt. I was like, oh my God, I was just drinking up all of this information. It was like, who knew all this stuff was going on and what was going on? And so then I found myself wandering to Cambridge Square and having signs and doing all these things. But I also knew that I needed to make sure that I was socially acceptable in this um, environment. So what did I do? I tried out for cheerleading and JV cheerleading in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. And so that's what I I was. I was like the first black cheerleader in Lexington, Massachusetts. And so, you know, that was my acceptance card. And, um, you know, still had the academic thing. I had always maintained that academic thing. And you know, so we pushed the envelope. We pushed the envelope even then. It was like we won a black studies class. I was a junior in high school. It was like, let's rock and roll. I want a black, we wanted a black studies class. We did a black history program. We assimilated a riot. We did all kinds of stuff. Wow. Bring awareness as to basically what we're dealing with today. It was like, it was the youth. It's this, as students, it was like, hear us, see us. Yeah, you made it known. You made it known. You and I, I think that's really interesting. That wherever you went, it feels like you had a mini reinvention. You reinvented yourself to fit into whatever that situation was, mm-hmm. whether it was in a mostly white situation, whether it was a place that was much more inclusive, mm-hmm. where you could kind of find yourself and be yourself. Yeah. But this ability to kind of flex your style to make it work for you. I think it's something to me that really builds resiliency. It does. And it um, it helps you to find your voice because it you if you don't, then you'll become inv- you'll become even more invisible than what society has you already. One thing I'm very interested in is your latest reinvention at 68 years young, mm-hmm. you, as you have continued to do throughout your life, reinvented yourself many times in many different ways, but you are doing something that's very interesting to me called the Zola experience. Yes. Can you talk about how you are being of service to other people through this? Um, the history of the Zola experience, um, I, this was like, it's like 10 years ago now that I, you know, the idea of like, you know, how do people recover from grief and loss? And, you know, I I don't know what was going on in my world, but I'm, you know, working in the field of addiction and recovery, we always talk about recovery from loss. And there's been some some tools that have come out um, that have talked about how to help people move through that spectrum. And, but, you know, we weren't re- we aren't really given a, lo- a great a lot a lot of tools to do that, and so my thought was, you know, at first it was just really focused on grief and loss from um, uh, people transitioning, and I had approached, um, 
you know, I had this burning desire to talk to, you know, Mr. Howard Cahill. And God put me on the steps with him after a funeral. And I had said to Mr. Hill, I was like, you know, what is, what do you, what does this industry do with individuals and families? Cause I'm a family therapist. It's like, what happens to them after this, after all of this? And he was like, well, you know, not, not really. Do you have an idea? And I said, absolutely. I do. He said, well, I said, when can I talk to you about my idea? And he was like, well, come see me. Uh, you know, he gave me a date and time and I said, okay. And so I did my, research and I presented to him that, you know, historically, this is what happens. Nothing, basically. Sometimes they'll refer you to a church or sometimes to a private therapist, but basically nothing. And so I presented him with this model of a group intervention. And I had, uh, at that time, I had six sessions that I had um, come up with. And I presented them and I presented the model of, you know, therapists and trained people and this, that, and the other thing. And so we ran with that for about four years. And um, it was, and I kept data and it worked. And then life got in the way for everybody. And um, so it lay dormant for about four years until May of this year. And spirit woke me up and said, and I know people are saying, yeah, right. It said, but truly it did. Spirit woke me up and said, it's time to do Zola again, but you're going to do it differently this time. And I was an obedient servant. And this was like at 530 in the morning. I got up, I turned on my computer and I started writing. And this is the result, <laughs> a book. But it's a book and a workbook all in one. And the vision is that I will train providers, community providers, professional providers. The book, the, the, the seven sessions are written and they are real concretely written so that you do not have to be a, a trained master's prepared therapist in order to do it. You can be a community provider uh, that that organizes people and, and, and brings people together. You can be uh, the person that runs the women's ministry in your church. You can be all of, you can be just a person that is interested in learning how to help people through this, these modules. And so when I, I, you know, as I started and I finished this manuscript, and I started praying again. I was like, okay, God, I don't know what else to do with this, right? So this friend of mine, she is like, oh, you know, I have this young woman that, you know, she can help pull it together, clean it up a little bit. And certainly, yeah. So I was like, okay. So, so she turned me on to this woman named Samia Hussein. And I was like, okay. So Samia, she cleaned it up a little bit. And so then it was like, okay, am I ready to, well, I don't know how to publish a book. Like, where do, where do I get that from? So I go back in my prayer space. And I was like, you know, I need guidance. Just, you know, I call on the ancestors, the angels and my guides. Can you just bring that to me? And so this, uh, two mutual friends, I had done a, a, a program for somebody and they were like, this woman can help you publish this book. And so they, I was introduced to this young fireball of a woman um, her name is Petrina Reddick and she owns Pimosh Publishing and she does phenomenal things with children and adults. And she was like, are you, you know, what do you have? And I told her what I had. And she says, you know, are you serious about doing it? And I was, yes. I said, I have a mission. My mission is to train as globally, uh, Zola facilitators to heal communities to add value to communities. And it's written that it so that you are not only healing from people that have transitioned, you can heal from loss of body image. You can heal from loss of secure housing. You can go through the Zoli experience to heal, to heal and recover from uh, loss of your job. And during that four years hiatus, I was able to use the what was the model 
in individual therapy. I was, I was in individual private practice at the time. And people were like, you know, I lost my husband, my boyfriend, he's dead, my job. And I was like, okay, are you willing to do this with me? Let's walk through this. And it works. That's and it great. works. And so my mission at 68 years old, people are like, you're writing a book, you know, you're Why retired. Not? You know Why what I'm not? saying? And I'm like, I don't know. Who knows what else I have inside of me? But this is this this is a beautiful thing. I love and that. So now I'm on a mission to train as many people globally as I can. That is and fabulous. Eventually, to just have an army of people train the trainers group, uh, support groups for trainers, facilitators. Because you know, COVID. This, you know, it's interesting because you know, I looked up the word crisis. And the, the original definition of crisis was testing time. So we, I have chosen to say that we're not in a crisis. We're in a testing time and a testing time on a number of levels. We're in a testing time spiritually because when you think about it, I can't go to a brick and mortar church. We can't do that. So if you were wedded to the brick and mortar, you had to redefine your relationship with your spiritual relationship, right? Right, okay. absolutely. It's completely right. different now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so you're in a we're in a testing time of of staying connected. How do you stay connected? And before we would say, well, you know, if I haven't seen so and so and so, then you know, you know, yeah, that's my cousin, but hey, you know. People, people were divorcing people for less. You know what I'm saying? And now what do we do? We're on Zooms. We're on, we're, we're connecting in any human way that we possibly can. And we're more powerfully than before, in fact. Exactly. And we're in a testing time of, of our mentality, of our psychological testing time. There are people that are living alone. And, you know, because you're not inviting people into their living space, they've had to connect in a different, in different kinds of ways. And, you know, those people that are fortunate to live in, you know, more tempered weather, they can still get together in a park. I mean, you know, yes, we had to get very creative. And so when you, when you read all these uh, spiritual books, religious books, God does a cleansing every now and again when people get so far from the balance. We yes. were very, very off balance. Oh, so true. That. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I agree. As a therapist, it was like we, the, we, the, the complaint was that people were isolating themselves with electronics. Yes. Oh right? my gosh. Yes. Absolutely. We would go to a restaurant, and at one time I went to a restaurant. I saw a little baby in a carriage with a with a phone. Yeah. Just the saddest thing that I could. Right. And everybody at the table had a device. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and it was interesting that the psychology, the stresses of the psychology changed when they said, "Oh, you have to be separate now." You can't be together now. And then the desire of the never missed your water to the well ran dry. It's like, I crave people. I, I, know. <laughs> I need the, the irony of it, right? The irony yeah. of it. It's so, it's so interesting, but I, I do agree with you. It feels like it's sort of like a global reset button. It's such it a, is. it's, and I know it's been so difficult on so many different levels, of course. But I also have seen it as a blessing, as an opportunity, as this amazing time to spend more time on myself. Yeah. To get more quiet, to not and not have the pressure of, well, I should be doing X, Y, and Z. Well, I told Thank so-and-so you. and so-and-so and, you know, spreading myself thin, running around way too much. So I think I think there's something to be said about that. I do want to go back to something you said earlier, which was this when, it, when you're talking about Zola, mm-hmm. I thought it was fascinating. You were talking about this idea of how you want this to be global. You want to reach all these people. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really strikes me about that is that some women, as they age, they feel like their world is getting smaller. Mm-hmm. It's attracting because maybe their kids have left, they're all grown up, or 
a spouse or your family starts to pass away. Maybe you're not as mobile for whatever reason, but there are some changes that often sometimes make people feel like the world is smaller. And what's mm-hmm. interesting about what you said is it feels like your world is just increasing, that you have these big, juicy dreams of wanting to tell as many people about this, to be able to impact as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for a woman who's kind of unsure, she maybe wants to dip her toe into this idea of, oh, what if I reinvented myself? What advice do you have mm-hmm. for someone who's just getting started? They aren't where you are, where you're like, oh, I'm going to do it all and I'm going to tell the world and I'm going to be of service. But they're like, hmm, where can I start? Well, I would say to them, if they were in, in my space, you're retired, um, your children are grown, they're doing their thing. I say, treat it like you were going to get into a swimming pool. The worst thing you could do is just dip your one toe in, just dive in and do it. The worst thing that can happen is that you don't like it. So you just come out of that water and then you find something else to do. But this is probably the most exciting time of my life. I don't have any true obligations. I don't. I only obligation I have is to myself and to my wanting to maintain my journey wanting to to please the creator. And I say to people, you know, I don't care what what your physical your your spiritual philosophy is, it just really breaks down to two things. Honor the creator and honor the creation. Those are the two things. And if you do those two things, then the rest of them eight commandments will take care of themselves. Because you will want to love the, the next person that's sitting next to you. And I love you enough to be honest with you. I love you enough to let you go. I love you enough to, to hear you. I love you enough to see you. I love you enough to feel you. And that is the essence of the creator, which is love. That's it. That is the highest vibration that one can, can aspire to be, that one can embrace is the um, is the vibration of love. And so, yeah, I would say to you, my sisters, please, you, whatever you're, just start writing. Just say, if I could do anything and money wasn't an issue, time wasn't an issue, space wasn't an issue, what would you do? Just put two things on the page. That's it. Find yourself a thinking place. Where do you go to think? Where do you go to, where do you go that just, just infuses your spirit? Whether it's the, the, some people like, let me, they have a favorite park. I got a favorite spot in, in, in the West Haven beach that I love to go to. It's a little bit secluded, but it's, you know, but that's where I like to go. And I like to write there. I like to sit there. I like to cry there. I like to do all those things. Find that place. Like a lot of people say, you know, find your prayer closet. That doesn't literally mean a closet in your house. (laughs) It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, right? (laughs) Find the place where you can commune. Where you can have your unfiltered conversations with your creator. And, And sometimes the best conversation is silence. Oh, we yes. spend so much verberage praying. Oh God, if you just did it. Oh God, if you just did it. Oh God, if you just did it. Be quiet. Mm-hmm. Give, give, give the, give creator a chance to answer you. And I know for a lot of people that feels really uncomfortable. Just the yeah. thought of it. It's like sitting in silence. Yes. That is everything, girl. To, I am with you. Yes. We have to sit in silence because I'm telling you. I have had prayer experiences where I was trying to get God to move somebody else to do something, something, because I yeah. thought that was what I wanted. And I heard the voice. I was the only one in my house, and I was in deep in prayer. And God said, who are you worshiping? 
And I was like, excuse me. I looked around. I was like, okay, this is really weird. I went back into the, God, if you only let him do this, if you just said, yeah. who are you worshiping? It, it, it spoke it twice to me. He didn't need to tell me a third time. Yeah, you got, got it. it. You got it. You got it. It was real clear. It was like, let your will be done in me and through me and just allow me to say the words that you would have me to say and walk the path that you would have me to walk. I say that to myself all the time. And that if I can do one thing to add value to one human being's life this day, then I will feel that I have done your work. Mm-hmm. And that's how I lived my life. Every time I would cross that threshold to my job, that is what I would say. God, if you've just blessed me to touch one human being's life in a positive way today, then I would feel that I have done your work. Yeah. I love that. I, I One of the things I heard you say was allowing. And yeah. what I see a lot is that, myself included, we often try to control things. Mm. If I can just, you know, if I just do this, this will happen. I mean, I understand we want to try to make something happen, but I think that so much of life is the ability to let go and trust and allow these things to happen mm. because we're usually in such a rush. Like I want it and I want it now. Well, maybe it's going to come, but not on mm-hmm. quite your timetable. One of the things that um, my daughter and I were talking about today that we said, I think we're going to make a t-shirt that says in divine time and in divine order. So, and it's yeah. already, and it's already all right. Whatever yeah. is going on in your yeah. life, that's our family. That's our family mantra. It's already all right because it's been preordained. For you. Yeah, it's already all right. I like that a lot. So you don't have to worry so much. We don't have to worry so much or be so consumed by, as I know we, and I think it's just right, human nature that we worry and we want things to work out. I mean, who doesn't? We all want things to work out in the way we want them to work out. But this idea that we could just trust and you know, have that sense of knowing, I know, you know, we have to kind of practice that. It doesn't just come naturally for some of us. I know that you mentioned in your, in your bio, we talked to, I mentioned in your bio is that you lead retreats for women. That's one of the things I've seen you talk about on Facebook. I know you're really passionate about this, but I know that women, and I know you know this so well, women, we are notorious for taking care of everybody else but ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I think that's part of the way we've been socialized. That's just the caretaker in us, whether we've got children or not, what it it could be manifest in many ways. What's one thing our listeners can do to practice abundant self-care? What's one suggestion you have? You know, everyone can go to retreat, has the Um, money or the time or whatever. And now we're, you know, at home, obviously a lot. So what, what's, what's one suggestion for that? Well, I would just suggest that you schedule it in, that you block off time from this time to this time. Don't knock on my door. Don't come in the bathroom if that's that's where you want to be to have your candles lit and you in your bathtub or whatever it is, or you want to take a a half hour shower or whatever. But you got to schedule these things in until they become what you do. and. So you have to schedule them because those individuals around you, they are they they got to be retrained to respect that boundary, and they and because they've not had it before, and especially you know oh yeah okay I will yes 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 we say yes to everything but to ourselves mm-hmm. yeah you know we we struggle with saying you know I I you know we sit there with a group full of women and I will say to them. This is how I will learn your name. I want you to go around the room and I want you to give me a positive attribute that phonetically connects to your name. Like I would say, my name is Keturah and I am kind. And you would say, my name is Wendy and I am wonderful. Exactly. I tell you, without a doubt, they sit there and they go, well... Can you come back to me? (laughs) I've been in groups like that. Yes. And that in and of itself is reflective of the fact that how much time have you spent on you and how and your own and your strengths in the things that you bring to the table and how wonderful you are, how beautiful you are. 
And I did a, a, a post a few weeks ago. It's called, you know, to stand in the mirror in your birthday suit, preferably. And so that you can see a full body of yourself and talk to yourself and say, do you know how blessed you are? This is how blessed you are, Katora. Talk to yourself. Mirror work is very important. And Louise Hay is one of those people that I study. And she does this whole thing with mirror work. I, I've been doing it for a long time. I used to give people like a, a three-inch uh, diameter mirror. I used to keep a bunch of them in my drawer at work. And I would tell them, look at the mirror and, and, and tell yourself, Give yourself one positive thing about yourself. I don't care if you say, you know, I got long eyelashes. I don't care what it is, but just say one positive thing about yourself. And then we would try to, the goal was for them to be able to stand in front of a full length mirror and talk to themselves about how fabulous they are. Which is no easy task. It is not an oh. easy task. And it is a, it's a process. It's not an event. Yeah. It is a process that, it's so important, though, mm-hmm. for us. It's like, you know, you've got to, if, if your vessel is empty, what are you giving? And that's why we, we are number one in heart disease. We're number one in autoimmune disease. We're number one in all these things, except for relaxing and self-care. Right. We're not number one in self-care. We don't, you know, spa, like what's a spa day? You know what I'm saying? There's so I many, do. you know, it's now it's trendy that you have a spa day, but you know, yeah, we need to have spa days. We need to have uh, a sit in the woods day. We need to have all of those things that, that, that refresh us, that replenish us, that is healthy for us, as opposed to sitting there with a pint of ice cream. And then what do you do? Yeah. Plant in front of the TV. Exactly. And not, and not even feeding yourself with good stuff on the TV. Yeah, exactly. And not to say that we shouldn't sometimes treat ourselves, but when that's just sort of the norm and not- and that's your go-to. Right? right? Exactly. Exactly. You have shared so much wisdom. And I think our listeners are going to be really excited to soak up this idea of how I can feel more empowered, how I can take better care of myself, how I can do take some steps to move along this path of reinventing myself, no matter how old I am. Here you are, 68, doing all these amazing things with this idea that there really aren't any limits. Mm-hmm. I know people are going to be excited to be able to find you somewhere uh, and maybe contact you to hear more about what you do Katora, how can how can our listeners find you? What's the easiest way to find you online or in the mm. social media world? Well, the easiest way is to go to my website, www.thezolaexperience.com. Subscribe and there's a space in there to leave me a message. I promise you that I will uh, respond and uh, whatever your inquiry is and just have fun on the website because it, you'll learn about the trainings that we have coming up to be a facilitator and don't be don't be afraid to do it because I've trained um, people that are everyday people as well as people that are credentialed people and trust and believe the experience is the same and you will be able to do it and I'm not going to allow you to falter. I will be a resource for you. And because that, this is my mission. This is what my divine mission. And I was, sometimes I, I struggled with saying that this was my divine mission uh, because people looked at me like divine mission. Yes. And I had to embrace it because that is what God has given me with the Zola experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we should feel more comfortable and confident stepping into whatever that mission is and embracing it. Yeah. Right. As you're doing and just shouting it out like, hey, I came here to this earth to do something to be of service to others, because I feel the same way about reinvention rebels. Like that is my mission. Yes. Right? It's to elevate, to illuminate, right? Oh, my God. This is like the most beautiful thing, because sometimes, you know, when you reach a certain age that people forget about the talents and skills and the wisdom and that our generation carries. And I, I truly thank you. And I, 
And I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to the podcast and learning and they've made me cry and they've made me laugh and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I've known some, some of the folks, yeah. intimately and, you know, and it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> and I learned something about them during the podcast that I didn't know about them, which is a beautiful thing. I, I just think this is beautiful. It is beautiful. Thank you. And I am so grateful that you were my guest today. It was an awesome conversation. I can't wait for everyone to hear this whole conversation and share it with the world, everything we've talked about today. Hey, amazing listener. Did you love today's episode? Did you find inspiration you can apply to your own life? I'd love for you to take a moment to rate and review the Reinvention Rebels podcast on your favorite platform. That would be awesome and I would be so appreciative. Let's help spread the word to more people and get them inspired. Are you tired of waiting for someday? Feel like you're too old or it's too late to reinvent yourself? Unsure of how you'd even get started on the path to midlife reinvention? I'm here to help. As your guide on the side and host of the top 2% globally rated Reinvention Rebels podcast, I've been around the reinvention block a lot. Here's a simple way you can get started. Sign up for my free audio, Five Questions to Spark Your Curiosity and Inspire Your Reinvention Rebel Journey. It all starts with getting curious about what's possible. And I've got five questions to help tease out some very cool ideas. Let's get started. Details are in the show notes.